Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. With each new technology, there are challenges. The difference with this one is how intrusive it is, how big data has allowed social media to infiltrate our lives and essentially organize us for ourselves. They're not ideologically driven. They're driven by algorithms. And the inspiration of those algorithms is to shove us into our silos in which our views are sometimes informed, but always affirmed. And everybody outside the silo is alien and threatening. And one of the concerns I have is how do we overcome that? And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. As I mentioned last week, I will spend the next few episodes of this podcast using my spiel at the beginning to walk you through the argument in my new book, The Identity Trap, a story of ideas and power in our time. In the first part of the book, I try to understand where the set of ideas about race and gender and sexual orientation that came to be so influential on college campuses in the United States and the United Kingdom and beyond by about 2010 actually came from. Now, there hasn't really been much serious work on that. There's been barely any academic work on trying to trace the roots of this new ideology. And the few Things that have been published on it, mostly from the right, misunderstand the tradition as a form of what we call cultural Marxism. So they basically say, look, you take Marxist ideas, you know, you take out social class, you put in identity categories, and boom, you have a set of ideas that are prominent today in departments of comparative literature or even the ideas that are powerful on Twitter or in the American public sphere. And I was open to that claim as I started to do extensive research for this book, drawing on my training as an intellectual historian, but I came to the conclusion that it's quite fundamentally wrong. That the starting point of quote-unquote wokeness, of the identity synthesis, as I prefer to call it, really came in post-war Paris with the thought of Michel Foucault as well as other postmodernists and later post-structuralists. And there was a moment in which Marxism was very dominant in intellectual life. Foucault himself joined the French Communist Party, which was under the diktat of Moscow, in 1950. But he left in 1953, and he never looked back. When he started to reflect on what he called the grand narratives that he encouraged his readers to be skeptical of, he had in mind philosophical liberalism which makes this tradition from the beginning an attack on liberalism. But he also explicitly had in mind scientific Marxism, which he thought of uh, just as misguided a grand narrative. And so at the core of Foucault's thought lay a few claims. The first was a deep skepticism about objective truth, a deep skepticism that the category of true and false were particularly useful 
in politics and a skepticism, therefore, of political truth claims, like the idea that all men are born equal. The second key component of his thought was a reconceptualization of how to think about power. When I say the word power, you might be picturing a president or a prime minister passing laws or making commands, a state apparatus translating this power from the top down. But for Foucault, the most important kind of social power really was held by public discourses, by the ways in which particular ways of talking about things constrained the ways in which we can act, constrained how we can think even of ourselves. Those were the things that truly disciplined how people could live. And finally, Foucault, who in our contemporary terms might be called gay or might be called homosexual, thought that those labels were really simplifying and therefore misleading and constraining, that we should reject most identity labels, that they were a form of philosophical essentialism that we must reject. Now, these three ideas mark the starting point for a series of developments that come later. And I will chronicle in the next weeks how the traditions of post-colonialism and of critical race theory, combined with Foucault, build to the identity synthesis, allowed the introduction of the core themes that we see even in very applied contexts today. But one of the strange parts of that journey is the old saying, careful what you wish for. Because even though I strongly believe and will argue that Foucault stands at the root of these developments, I think in many ways, by the time we get to the present day, many of the core elements of the identity synthesis are beliefs that Foucault would have viewed very skeptically, of which he himself may have been quite horrified. If you want to understand that journey, listen to the next episodes of A Good Fight and please go and read alongside me by The Identity Trap, a story of ideas and power in our time. My guest today is David Axelrod. David was the chief strategist for Barack Obama's presidential campaigns in 2008 and 2012. He is also the author of a memoir called Believer, My 40 Years in Politics. David and I talked about what made Obama an exceptional candidate, how he was able to build such a broad winning coalition in 2008, what the conditions were in the politics and culture of that period that made a figure like Obama possible and whether it would be possible today in the same way. We also talked about uh, the political scene today, about the state of Joe Biden's presidency and his odds for winning re-election in 2024. David and I debated a little bit about just how likely it is that Donald Trump is on track to win re-election in 24, and what it is that Joe Biden or Democrats more broadly could do to lower that likelihood. 
David Axelrod, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, sure. Great to be with you. Thanks for inviting me. Look, I'm going to ask you sort of one of the obvious questions about your life and your work first. You know, when you met with Obama in Chicago, you know, at this point two, three decades ago, what made you look at the guy and think he could really be president? In retrospect, it's always easy to think, you know, you have a sort of special charisma to be president. And Obama, of course, is one of the most charismatic presidents we've had. Was it sort of obvious from the first moment you met him? Were you skeptical at first? What convinced you? No, I wish I could claim that kind of clairvoyance and judgment to see a 33-year-old guy or however, however he's probably 31 when I met him, and say, oh, yeah, this guy's going to be president. But I will tell you, someone did. I had a friend in Chicago her name is Betty Lou Saltzman. She was kind of a doyen of liberal politics in Chicago. And she called me one day in 1992, and she said, I just met the most extraordinary young man, and I think you ought to meet him. And I said, I'm happy to meet anybody you want me to meet, Betty Lou, but why? And she said, because I think he's going to be the first black president. And I thought, well, that's pretty grandiose. But then I met with him, and you know, here are the things that struck me. He was obviously very, very bright and thoughtful in a way that stood out to me among people in politics, certainly. He wasn't in politics then, but he said that he was interested in a career in public service. And I looked at him, and here was a guy who had been the president of the Harvard Law Review. It was a national story at the time when he was elected because it broke down this barrier. And I figured he could have written his ticket at any law firm or at any corporation. And he came back to Chicago to run a voter registration drive and went to work at a small civil rights and labor rights firm. And he said, you know, I want to be about something larger than myself. And I really want to serve. And I'm not sure how to do it, but that's what I want to do. So what I left Yasha with is the impression of this is a guy who should be in public office. He would be a huge asset. I wasn't humming hail to the chief when I left that lunch, but clearly he had great capacities. And uh, it was only later in time that I allowed myself to think that, you know, this guy could actually be a major force on the national stage. If I'm imagining at the moment who might, you know, emerge as a breakout candidate in 2028 or 2032 or perhaps in 2024, you know, it's easy to see the negatives on everybody. The guy isn't charismatic enough. and we're, we're conditioned to see the negatives these days, but yes. But, you know, when you first met with Obama, what were the things where we're giving you pause? What were the things where you're thinking, well, look, if this guy really wants to make the big time, you know, here are some of the things that he needs to work on. And did he have similar things that you would have worried about than the things that you worry about? There were things, listen, right up to when he decided to run for president, he asked me to write a strategic memo arguing the case for why he should or shouldn't run. And, you know, there were a lot of reasons why I thought he should run. One concern I had was, was he tough enough to survive what I knew would be a extraordinarily tough process. I had the advantage of having participated in that process several times before. He had never really been a part of it in the sort of relentless scrutiny and the sort of absurd kinds of tests that you're put through, which I actually think are an important part of evaluating who could be president. But what I worried about was 
because we had done a Senate race in 2004 in which we were running against Alan Keyes, who was, you know, kind of a forerunner of today's populist right, religious right. And Alan Keyes, he wasn't going to win. He wasn't going to come close. We were ahead by 50 points. But he had the capacity to irritate Obama in ways that no one has before or since. And, you know, we had three debates and Keyes, I would say, probably won some of those debates just by aggravating Obama. It got to the point where there was an evening I was watching the news and there was a I think a Puerto Rican Independence Day parade or Puerto Rican Day parade in Chicago. And I'm watching and the story is that, and there's footage of it, Obama and Keyes almost getting into a fist fight. And Obama was the one who provoked it. He went over to him. He had objected to Keyes saying that Obama had the slave owner's position on abortion. And this really bothered Obama. And he constantly poked Obama about whether he was genuine in his religiosity and whether he was authentic as a black man. Two very sort of tender points. So, you know, I called him that night. I said, like, what the hell? We're ahead by 50 points. Why are we in a boxing match? And he said, that guy just gets under my skin. And I wrote a, uh, I don't know how much you follow the history of boxing, uh, Yasha, but... Not my intellectual forte, I have to admit. (laughs) In that memo, I said, I don't know if you're Floyd Patterson or Muhammad Ali. Now, Floyd Patterson was a great, magnificent boxer in the 50s and 60s, but he just couldn't take a punch. And, you know, if you hit him on the jaw, he'd go down. Uh, Muhammad Ali, on the other hand, was incredibly resilient in battle. And that was my concern. And I didn't really know the answer. And honestly, he grew. But that's funny because later the reputation of Obama was, if anything, but sometimes he was a little bit too cool and too poised and too self-controlled. I think his habit is to be self-contained, to be even, to not get... But he's human and those qualities were there. And one of the reasons why he reached the heights that he reached is the capacity to grow. And he would tell you, he was not a good candidate for a good six months after he announced for president. He was trying to learn the rules of engagement. He had to steel himself against the kind of scrutiny that he was getting. And if a comma was out of place, that could be the story for the day. You know, he thought at first that the whole thing was absurd, but he knew he had to adjust to it. And and he grew a thicker skin in the course of that campaign. And I watched him grow from the time we had that lunch in 1992 to the time he left the presidency in extraordinary ways. And not everyone has the capacity to do that. And that was one of the qualities that singled him out for greatness. So, you know, Machiavelli says that to be a statesman, you need to have luck, but you need to seize the luck as well. So there needs to be a kind of combination between your qualities and the qualities of the moment. What were the qualities of that moment that made it possible for a candidate like Obama to win? I mean, obviously, you know, there was the unpopularity of George W. Bush and so on, but I wonder in a broader cultural sense what it is that made Obama possible then and whether today 
you know, a similar kind of candidate, not necessarily in the sense of being black or anything like that, but in terms of sort of feeling like they are able to marshal this moment of hope and this, this sense of transformation. I wonder whether this would be possible today. And my instinct is telling me no, but perhaps it underestimates to what extent Obama created the moment. So what do you think were the sort of cultural conditions that made Obama possible? And do you think that something similar still is possible? Let me deal with the first thing first, because the second one's more complicated. Look, in 2003 and 2004, there was a tremendous sense of jaundice about politics in the country. There was a real backlash against the war in Iraq. Obama was the only major candidate who had spoken out against it from the beginning. But there was a larger sense that Washington was wrapped up in a kind of small ball competition between the red team and the blue team for who would hold power without regard to why one should or what you would do with it, and that politicians were fundamentally self-interested, and that the incentive, and this has become much worse in our politics, but the incentive was to weaponize problems rather than solve them. And Here comes Obama, who ran against all of that. And the reason he was able to do it was not just because he was against the war, but because he was fundamentally assaulting the prevailing politics of Washington and offering a more hopeful alternative in which people could, even if they differed, work together, in which we could bridge some of the great divides in our society And I think people really wanted it at that moment. And look, remember, this is a guy who carried the state of Indiana in that first election. This is a guy who carried North Carolina. This is a guy who almost carried Montana and Missouri. And I mean, he really did capture the imagination of the country and provoke people to think about what was possible and what was desirable. There was a tremendous reaction to that, and where we're in a reactionary moment. The thing, Yasha, that makes me uncertain, and I don't know, I may be naive, I may be a romantic, I was drawn to politics by John F. Kennedy, and, you know, I do have this great man theory that you need a charismatic leader who's, uh, you know, well-intended and smart to move the country along. But the thing that worries me about today is technology and the pace of technology. You know, I talk to my colleagues, I, I do a lot of things with Carl Rove, and Carl is a student of the McKinley era and so on in American politics. And Carl always, you know, says he's hopeful because we've been through these periods of upheaval before. And, uh, We've always emerged from them, you know, and a lot of them are around newspapers and then, you know, radio and television. And with each new technology, there are challenges. The difference with this one is how intrusive it is, how big data has allowed social media to infiltrate our lives and essentially organize us for ourselves. The great inspiration, they're not ideologically driven, they're driven by algorithms. And the inspiration of those algorithms is to shove us into our silos in which our views are sometimes informed, but always affirmed. And uh, everybody outside the silo is alien and threatening. And one of the concerns I have is how do we overcome that? Are we just in a 
cycle we can't get out of because the forces that are feeding us information and driving us into these silos are too powerful. And that remains to be seen. I mean, I wrote a book a few years ago called Believer, so I'm not going to throw the brand away. I really believe in American democracy and the ability to grab the wheel of history and turn it. But the wheel is tougher to turn right now. I want to put a sort of perhaps slightly airy-fairy sounding theory to you. Hey, man, I'm, I'm open for it. I'm, I'm, looking, I'm looking for one. Which is sort of about the broader background culture of the moment. So I came to America, I spent a year in New York in 2005 at Columbia, where Obama had also been at some point. And then in 2007, I started my PhD at Harvard. And so, you know, sort of Obama's rise really coincided with me coming to get to know America in a certain kind of way. So what strikes me about that cultural moment in retrospect is that there was a kind of mainstream highbrow culture of sort of irony, you know, it was the age of David Foster Wallace and David Latterman. But then there was sort of a, a dominant left-leaning culture, as it, it culture is always left-leaning in a certain kind of way. But that was very self-ironic, right? That it was clearly standing for certain progressive values, but in a way that was very capable of making fun of itself. So, you know, the, one of the biggest sitcoms was 30 Rock, and the biggest show on Broadway was Book of Mormon. And these were all things that sort of were quite straightforwardly liberal shows, but they all had a real sense of being able to make fun of themselves and their own kind of wobblers. And today it feels to me that the mainstream culture is very, very different. In part, there's a kind of moralism and sometimes a particular kind of obsession with identity on dominant parts of a left-leaning culture. And then sort of instead of the kind of irony, there's kind of a proud cynicism. I mean, I was really struck by seeing somebody on the subway, and I know this is highly anecdotal, with a baseball cap saying, I don't give a fuck. But something about that struck me about this moment. Yeah, I think I know that guy, but... They are, it's, it's a kind of weird mixture. It was a woman, actually. It's a weird mixture between between moralism and then this deep cynicism about the ability of a country to do better or, if, you know, the thing that's expressed in, in I don't give a fact. And then, of course, there's this sort of very vitriolic culture from the right, which would make it much harder for a candidate like Obama to have a shot in places like Indiana and so on. And so I guess I wonder whether that sort of mixture between the deeper polarization between the even harder edge of a right, but then also the just less appealing, in my mind, culture of the mainstream and of a more progressive spaces would just require a candidate like Obama to either distance himself from that in ways that would be very, you know, alienating to part of the base or be associated with it in ways that really limit their reach. This is sort of the inquiry question I want to put to you. Yes. First of all, just as a preface to that, the thing I was raising and the thing you were raising are not unrelated. The fact is, if you just live in a kind of media bubble in which you find your affinity group, you know, drives you into sort of more identity identification. And this is part of the struggle. But I think it would be harder for him. One of the things that helped us in 2008, because, you know, this thing has been turbocharged since then, both because of media and because of Trump and demographic changes and a whole range of things, financial crisis. There are a lot of things that have worked to split us apart since then. Our predicate in 2008 was that we need to see the humanity in each other. We need to find our common humanity. And one of the reasons that 
we got through the primary process and we ran counter. Most of the other Democratic candidates, including Hillary and John Edwards, they had a very hard-edged assault on the Republicans as the fundamental element of their campaigns. We did not. Our assault was on the politics writ large, not on one party or the other party. And it was very much about, you know, unifying the country, not dividing it up. But we got away with it in part because, A, he was against the war. And so that gave him a lot of running room with people on the left. And B, he was African-American. And uh, so, you know, that gave him some bona fides that we didn't have to claim, but were just there. The assumption that, you know, well, he's an intellectual black guy. I mean, he's got to be one of us kind of thing. But our approach was Barack Obama spent tons of time in kind of working class, white, rural and small town communities in that campaign. And you, know, by the way, just parenthetically, showing up actually matters in campaigns like showing respect, showing a solicitude, showing a willingness to listen. It's really important. We've sort of abandoned that now. We go to our areas of strength and, you know, in about eight states, and that's a whole presidential campaign. Well, even beyond that, I feel like when, when you look at the 2008 presidential map, it's just striking which states were in play, and it's striking which states Obama won. And, and I get a little bit impatient with some progressive, but also some of my colleagues in political science who are basically now making the argument that the Senate is in its foundations, you know, unjust and illegitimate because of Republicans winning smaller states and so on. And, you know, they're making this argument that we should somehow reform the Senate, which is not going to happen. I'm not talking about statehood for Puerto Rico and so on, which is perfectly appropriate if people there want it and vote for it. But, you know, a much more fundamental reform, which is just not ever going to happen. And instead, it seems to me the Democratic Party actually needs to make a play for the states, which Obama was able to win in 2008. Couldn't agree with you more. It's not just important for the Senate. It's important in order to win the presidency, you know, Biden only won Wisconsin by 20,000 votes, Georgia by like 12,000, uh, uh, Arizona by 11,000. Uh, and he won uh, in part because he got 33 percent of white working class voters and Hillary only got 28. So the small variances can make a big difference. I will say this. I understand the frustration of people when you have Issues in which a large majority of Americans agree, guns would be a good example, some gun safety laws, and you cannot get them through. You know, now abortion rights has obviously come to the fore. The Supreme Court has complicated these issues. How the Supreme Court became the court it is has complicated these issues. But there is a sense that there's a kind of tyranny of the minority. I mean, the system was set up to prevent a tyranny of the majority. But there is a feeling, and I don't think it's unjustified, that at times we're experiencing a tyranny of the minority, and that's a perversion of the system. But the answer, as you suggest, is not to bray about things that aren't going to happen. It's to, A, evaluate why you're not competitive in some of the places you're not competitive where you might be, and then make an effort to compete there and have a message that has some appeal to people in those areas. I don't mean to filibuster here, but right now I'm at a, my place in rural Michigan. And I was walking the other day past a neighbor's house, a farmer, and he came out because he had an abundance of green peppers and he wanted my wife and I to take these 
a couple of bags of green peppers and we started talking. And I don't really talk politics very much with my neighbors around here, but he got to Ukraine. And my father was a refugee from Eastern Europe. And as someone who appreciates democracy and feels the need for some order in the world, you know, I feel very strongly about what's going on there. But he said, and he mirrors what a lot of others in this area and in other areas like it are saying. It's like, you know, I don't have anything against Ukraine, but we're spending so much money there. And imagine what we could do with that money here. This segued into how they've cut back on crop insurance and what that does to him and so on. And, you know, I have my view on this, but, you know, to be dismissive of people's points of view, you know, this guy's a perfectly good guy. He's a good neighbor and so on, lovely person. We need to be better listeners. If we're going to be one country, then we need to be better listeners. And even if we don't agree, we owe people the respect of trying to understand their point of view and honoring that. It may not be my point of view, but there is some legitimacy to that point of view if you look at it from their perspective. So I agree with much of what you said just then. My colleague Steve Levitsky and Dan Ziblatt have a book coming out called The Tyranny of Minority, and I'm going to have them on the podcast and have that particular debate out with them, because I think it slightly underestimates sort of the basic question of why are we not able to win crushing majorities against somebody like Donald Trump, right? I mean, yes, there's the Electoral College, and yes, certainly in certain states, there's very heavily gerrymandered districts and so on. But, you know, to me, there are more fundamental questions about why are we not able to win commanding majorities against somebody who's as unfit for office and as extreme as Donald Trump and his Republican Party. And I just think sort of lamenting about, you know, the longstanding features of American governance is less helpful there than asking ourselves some tough questions. Didn't you write, Yasha, a piece about Berlusconi? Uh, yes, I did write one, well, many pieces about Berlusconi, but I wrote a piece about Berlusconi who sort of tried to fiddle with the electoral institutions in Italy briefly before the 2006 elections. And he's been six months out from the election in the hope that it would help him win re-election. And actually, all of the changes he made ended up guaranteeing the opposition a victory. But the other point, and I may be imputing to you something that I read elsewhere, but I'm pretty sure you did. There were a lot of similarities between Berlusconi and Trump, including the dismissiveness of elites of Trump as a political force. And, you know, one of the things that has propelled Trump and one of the reasons you can't win crushing majorities is that he has managed to make the dismissal of him by elites, a kind of parable of how the elites dismiss others. And he has rallied the people who feel disdained, who feel neglected, who feel like the system is rigged against them. And crazily, they identify with him, a guy who has had all the advantages in life and has taken more advantages than he had. So here's what we need to confront. The Democratic Party has become the progressive party, and it has become largely a cosmopolitan, metropolitan party. And while I think Democrats still maintain a sense of solicitude for people who need help, there is also this kind of, we approach them like Margaret Mead approached the natives, you know, it's like, we're here to help. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And I think that that is not lost on people. So 
I think some introspection on the part of progressives and Democrats is important. And, you know, as you've written extensively, there's identity politics on both sides of the divide. But democracy, to some degree, requires some sense of common interest, some sense of common investment, common humanity. And, you know, we can't go down this road in which we just dismiss, you know, the half the country or the third of the country, whatever, that we don't like as un-American and as maybe less than human, you know, it's concerning to me. And Obama didn't do that. You know, I know that in Washington, his reputation was as someone who was aloof. And I used to hear from politicians in Washington, you know, he just doesn't like people. And I used to say to them, no, he likes people. He just doesn't like you. (laughs) And, you know, I was with him through those years of campaigning and on the trail. I was with him in the White House when he would Every single day, someone would write him a letter because he'd get 10 letters a day that they would curate for him to reflect the kind of mail that was coming in. He often would call those people, he would write them, and he would come in and it would influence how he thought about things. And his greatest fear was losing touch with people. And he had a great capacity for relating to people broadly. And I think that's an important quality. If you're going to do what you suggested some minutes ago, which is reverse this kind of course we're on. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that strikes me is that after 2016, there's this huge debate in democratic circles about whether we need to rally the base or whether we need to, you know, persuade people. And Obama was very effective in 2008 at doing both, right? I mean, he had a huge turnout operation that was very, very successful, but he also managed to win over a huge number of independents. What would the core to a strategy be that tries to replicate that today? Or do you think that the same would not be possible today? Could there be a candidate who actually is effective at bringing out the democratic base while also being genuinely appealing to a lot of moderate swing voters? Or do you think that the extent to which there's now ideological litmus tests and what it takes to be in good standing with the left of the party would make that impossible? Obviously a very good question. There is less and less movable vote because party has now become a cultural identity. And so there's less movability among voters. That said... I still think that ultimately you win not just by mobilization, but by commanding majorities among moderates, among independents. And by the way, the Democratic Party is not all a left party. I mean, most people who, I, who call themselves Democrats still would describe themselves as sort of center-left Democrats. The activists in the party are obviously more left, just as the activists in the Republican Party are more right. But look, Biden was the moderate candidate in the race. Now, I know people say, well, he took these left positions. So he won. If you go back and look at that Democrat convention, which I thought was brilliantly done, you know, the things they emphasized were his faith, were his ties to the military, were his Scranton background and his working class background. I mean, the cultural signifying that was going on from that convention were really, really important. I remember also him standing up you know, in debates and in press 
situations and talking about the fact that he is not a socialist and he disagrees with Bernie Sanders on some issues and so on. I mean, he took progressive positions. I think on economic issues, he probably felt most comfortable doing that. That was certainly what the party demanded, but he didn't go as far as others on some things. And I think culturally, he sent signals that were really, really important. And I don't think if you run as a sort of Margaret Mead Democrat, you're going to uh, win. Years ago, someone said about liberals, and I consider myself, you know, liberal, but said about sort of organized liberals that they love humanity but hate people. I think that we need to start looking at each other as people again and focus on that. Yeah, I have a version of that thought, which is that, you know, after 2004, uh, journalists somehow had this idea of a beer test that, you know, you're going to win the presidency if people like wanting to have a beer with you. And I always thought the inverse beer test was more accurate. Nobody thinks we're going to have a pres- beer with a president. I don't think they care whether they would enjoy it. They do care about whether the president, if they turned up in their home today and had a conversation with them and they talked to him normally the way they do to their neighbors, would the president like them or would the president think you're a retrograde asshole? I mean, too often we give that impression. Since you mentioned Biden, we face a presidential campaign in 2024 in which Donald Trump is likely to be the Republican nominee. He has had at best a very mixed record in office, to put it politely. You know, in 2016, he made grand promises about the future of America. Um, they're not believable promises, but you can see why people who believed them would have found them to be appealing. Today, he is even more deeply self-obsessed, even more deeply narcissistic. It really just seems to be a matter of setting scores and, and taking revenge. And he has some very serious legal proceedings pending in the process against him. And yet, the latest poll as we're recording this conversation show Biden and Trump running head to head, perhaps with Biden with a little bit of an advantage among independent voters. But if this was the poll, then perhaps we'd have to give Biden a 60% chance of winning and Trump a 40% chance of winning if the election was, you know, next Tuesday. Well, there are, let me just interrupt you for one second. There are also other factors here that may come into play. If those two are the nominees, you could have a third and a fourth party you know, Cornell West is apparently planning to run on the Green Party line. Whose campaign manager is Jill Stein, a little bit on the nose. Yes, who Jill Stein, who I think had something to do with Trump's first victory. I mean, there were certainly states where her vote back in 2016 as the Green Party candidate exceeded the margin by which Trump won. And you've got to assume that there weren't a whole lot of Trump voters among her supporters. So that's a problem. And, you, you know, you hang around campuses. Cornell West will get some votes. How many? I don't know. But when you talk about the margins I spoke of earlier, Wisconsin, 20,000 votes. I guarantee you around uh, Madison, he's going to get some votes. And then you have this other issue of the No Labels Party that is trying to form. Then you have people like Joe Manchin and Larry Hogan who are talking about running. I just think that Biden needs a binary choice as he pretty much had in 2020. And he may not get that. So that's another complicating factor here. Yeah. And many of my friends and colleagues are very worried about no labels. Somehow they haven't become as worried about Cornel West yet. 
But I agree with you that both of those could draw real votes away from Biden and both of those could vote different kinds of votes away from Joe Biden. The kind of person who would be tempted by Cornel West and the kind of person who's going to be tempted by Joe Manchin is different, but they're both parts of a coalition that elected Joe Biden in 2020. I mean, I think I interrupted your question, which was why Biden is, why is it so close? Is that the... Yeah, well, why is it so close? You know, I mean, I do think for all of my, you know, quetching, lamenting about the moral and political mistakes of a Democratic Party, but Donald Trump is, uh, you know, an existential threat to our political system and that a second term by Donald Trump would be much worse than a first. And so I think we're sort of sleepwalking a little bit, thinking we've just accepted but we're going to go into this election where perhaps it's 50-50 odds that we somehow manage to avoid Trump, or perhaps the odds are 60-40, or if you're being really generous, perhaps the 70-30, but none of that should in any way be comforting. So isn't it time for Democrats to do something? And I don't know what that something is. Well, what is that something? What is that something? I mean, is it other Democrats running in a contested primary against Biden? Here's the issue. First of all, let me say, you and I might disagree on this point, but I honestly, and I've been critical of Biden when I thought, he deserved to be criticized, even though we served together and, you know, I know him well. And But I think he's done a really good job under very difficult circumstances. When you look at navigating the pandemic, I, certainly this situation in Ukraine and the leadership he's provided in pulling the allies together, the NATO allies together, I think legislation that he's passed that will have positive generational implications, infrastructure and and some of the uh, energy stuff and some of the healthcare things that he's done. That said, the issue, and I've been very frank about that, is age. I mean, you know, when you say you're worried about Biden's age, what his team will say is, well, just look at him, look at what he's done, look at what he's accomplished. But you know, the issue here is not political, it's actuarial. It's like, well, what can you say about how he's going to be when he's 84 and 85? And, you know, Republicans are going to elevate the vice president to co-star status here. And that will be a concern because she's not trading very high in polling right now. Here's why when you say Democrats should do something, there are Democrats who are concerned about this. There are Democrats who would love the president to cash in his chips and claim the credit that he rightly deserves as, a, I think, a historically good president. But he intends to run. And as long as he intends to run, and as time goes on, that becomes a self-executing decision because it's too late to have a campaign. If he decides to run, um, the fear is that he has enough strength and affection within the Democratic Party where he has a, an approval rating, you know, in the 80s, that someone will run against him, they will damage him, and he will be more vulnerable in a race against Trump. That's really the dynamic that's going on. I don't think people are oblivious to the risks here, but I think it's assessing what is the riskier path. Now, there's personal risk associated, too, because if you kind of take the shot and miss— you know, your career may well be over. As we said in The Wire, if you come for the old man, you better not miss. Exactly. Look, I get all of those arguments, and I'm certainly concerned both about how other candidates running might damage Biden and make it more likely that Trump gets elected in 2024, and frankly, that you know some of the candidates we might end up with could be a lot less electable than Joe Biden and be in a weaker position against Donald Trump. So let's keep that position to a side at the moment. I feel torn about it. I don't think it's obvious that it would be the wrong thing to do for some of the rising democratic stars, but I certainly see the risks and the concerns. So let's put it to the side for a moment. Well, Mike, is what can Biden do? I agree with you 
that he's had in many ways a good presidency so far. And yet he is quite unpopular in the polls, not horrendously unpopular, but but distinctly unpopular in the polls. And he's running head to head against Donald Trump, even without those third and fourth party candidates in the mix in the polls. And so he needs to, in that case, change something about his presentation, his positioning, or we're basically just accepting coin flip odds of Donald Trump being back in the White House. So what advice in that case would you give to the Biden campaign to move those polls away from, you know, pretty much even as they are at the moment? Yeah. Well, f- let me just say, we are so polarized as a country. We won 53-47 in uh, 2008, and, the, and you know, it was an electoral landslide. But when you consider 53-47... That's not as huge a margin as you'd think. So, like I said, party identity has become a sort of cultural identity for lots and lots of Americans. That's limiting. But in terms of Biden, yeah, I mean, look, you know, you look at where the economy was then and where it is now, and and inflation's going down, and it may be that oftentimes, and we experience this polling lags economic improvements. And it may be over time people will recognize that things are better and uh, will give him credit for it. And I think they'll probably mount a campaign to tell people what he's achieved. And to me, the contrast that works is you look at this Republican Congress and the kind of crazy crap that they are consumed by. And, you know, you contrast this with kind of very tangible gains for people that Biden has focused on. And I think you want to set that example. But at the end of the day, you got to lean into what the alternative is. And I think what this portends is a very negative campaign. As you point out, I mean, Trump 2.0 would be the uh, Delta variant of democracy. It'd be a thousand times more virulent and harder to control. And uh, everyone should focus on that. But it's not just that. They have veered so far from positionings that are mainstream positionings. They are so consumed by these cultural issues and obsessive retaliation and so on. And I think this is why Democrats did better than anybody thought they would or should by historical standards in 2022. I think people feared exactly what they're seeing right now. And so, you know, I do think that the contrast will be or should be persuasive, and you've got to lean into the contrast. But the one question that I can't answer is, how do you answer that question I raised earlier, which is, well, what's he going to be like when he's 85? And, you know, one of my fears is Biden is very competent in the job. He is less good as a communicator. And, you know, image is important in politics. And there is a sense coming out of the pandemic and with all the change that's coming at people that things are out of control and he's not in command. There is that image with some of these voters that you need to address. And part of it will be telling the story of how he's been in command and what he's delivered. But it's going to be hard in a very, very difficult communications environment in which People are being fed a lot of sort of negative memes. So, and I'm not sitting here with reams of research as I was when I was doing the Obama campaign. That's actually something I miss is waiting up till one in the morning so that I can get that evening's polling data and 
prepare my thoughts for the next day. I don't have that. But it's a messy track, Yasha. And I think there's no denying that. And I do think that a different candidate might have a better chance, might have, depending on who that candidate is. I wouldn't underestimate that the sort of lingering element of connection that Biden has with you know cultural connections that he can invoke. But I'm not sure that either party will be fielding the most competitive candidate. It looks like neither party will be. You know, I know it's a little unfair to ask people for percentages, but if it is an election of Biden versus Trump with Cornel West and some form of no party candidate, perhaps Joe Manchin as spoiler candidates, what chance do you give Biden? What chance do you give Trump? I still think he has the edge. And a lot of it depends on what happens between now and then with Trump's legal cases. You know, if he were convicted in some of these cases, particularly the federal cases, particularly the January 6th case, these are burdens that could be too much. Right now, these bricks that are being put on his load, I keep saying, I don't know in the Republican race whether they're kryptonite or battery packs. I think they actually have helped him in the Republican race. I think there are limits to that, and certainly they haven't helped with independent voters. So, you know, that's one variable. I guess it makes some difference who No Labels puts on their ticket. I mean, Joe Manchin's a Democrat, but I'm not sure it makes that much of a difference. In 1980, John Anderson, who was a liberal Republican congressman from Illinois, uh, ran as an independent in that race. And I think he got 7% of the vote. Someone out there will fact check me. But uh, most of those came from Carter, not Reagan, even though he was a Republican. So, yeah, I think the no labels thing is a big variable. And if they get going and if they actually get on the ballot in 50 states, and most importantly, in the eight sort of most competitive states, I think that could be a real problem for Biden. One of the things that Democrats should be doing is everything they can to discourage the no labels party and to try and persuade Cornell West that no good is going to come from tipping this race to Trump. I don't want to compare George W. Bush to Trump, but I know a lot of Democrats look back at that election as a watershed election because of the war and so on. It was one because Ralph Nader was on the ballot in Florida, got 80,000 votes. You know, Al Gore lost by 5,000. People shouldn't lose that bit of history. That could happen again. I have to say that I find Cornel West to be much more interesting and charming than Ralph Nader, but I'm not sure that his sense of self-regard is any less large. I agree with you. I mean, one of the reasons that Cornell will get some votes is he is charming and he is interesting and he deeply believes what he believes. I don't think Cornell West is running with any illusions that he's going to be president of the United States. No, he wants to make his case. And I think, if anything, he's going to win more votes than Jill Stein did in 2016, potentially. But as a last question, I want to ask you, what is something that Obama did right, either in, in his campaign in 2008 or in his presidency, Democrats today ignore? The sort of prosaic answer is showing up in places where people don't expect you. First of all, we had to show up because we were running a primary campaign in 50 states, and that required us to go to places where we wouldn't even be competitive in a general election. But the impact of actually going to those places on him and on the public were important, harder with a sitting president. That's one thing. But the bigger thing is our basic feeling was, Let's emphasize 
those issues that are of broadest concern. And so we really spoke a lot about economics and the economy and not just the way the economy was, but the way the economy was going and the dangers of an economy in which large numbers of people were basically left out of the gains. And I think that has proven out and that process has accelerated. And certainly the financial crisis has accelerated it. And then the third thing I would say is we acknowledged that, you know, trade and globalization became part of democratic orthodoxy. And I think that they are part of the reality of our times. But we were not, as a party, sensitive enough to the dislocation that certain regions and certain communities would face because of it. And I think we were more sensitive to it in our campaign than the other. The other thing, Yasha, that we were part of that we couldn't avoid was in the financial crisis, we had to take the steps we took to try and keep the economy from collapsing. But to the person who's sitting in middle America, in the middle of the country, who lost their home or their job, uh, their impression was, well, gee, if you're really poor, you get handouts. I don't like the characterization, but that's what they would say. And if you're a Wall Street financier who you know, fleeces the country, you get bailouts. And we're left to fend for ourselves. And I think those two things have radicalized a section of the country. What we did was express awareness of the failures or the downside of these policies and a sense that it was really, really important. I mean, our 2012 campaign for re-election was a very populist campaign, but we focused on those things. We did not focus on cultural issues. Now, this is a different time. Obviously, abortion rights is going to be a big piece of this. But, you know, in 2016, I found myself saying, what is in the rhetoric of the Democratic Party right now that has anything meaningful to say to my neighbors in the rural areas of Michigan? I think we need to keep that in mind. David Axelrod, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Really a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.